When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 299 of Sustainable Minimalists, a twice-weekly show about intentional and eco-minimalist living. On today's show, we are discussing the principles of long-path thinking. Many of us tend to be short-termists. We think five years into the future, or maybe 10. Even my favorite question for putting things in perspective, which of course is, will this matter in five years? That is a short-term way of thinking. If you're like most of us, perhaps you occasionally take a longer-term view in which you think about the long-term as being from this exact moment until the moment we die. But my guest today argues that we all, so each and every one of us, will benefit from a long path view of thinking. And that's one that extends beyond our own personal lives, beyond our respective deaths, and into the generations that come after us. Today I am speaking with Ari Wallach. He is a futurist and he is the founder and executive director of Long Path Labs. Ari also has a new book out called Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors Our Future Needs. And in the first part of our conversation today, Ari and I discuss what exactly long path thinking is, so we're laying it out. And then in the second part of today's conversation, after the break, we are applying the principles of long path thinking as a potential solution, as one of many potential solutions to our climate crisis. Ari, I'm really thrilled to talk to you today. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm excited to talk to you today also. Well, you talk a lot about futurism. And I've heard you say before that the word future isn't a noun, but it's a verb. We have control over it. So let's start there. What on earth is a futurist? Well, so here, it's interesting. I often, people often say, well, you know, like you're a futurist. Does that mean you predict the future? And so let's start off by saying there's no crystal ball. I am not that type of futurist. People who are kind of working futurists like me What we do is we work with large organizations. It could be philanthropies. I've worked with the U.S. State Department, the United Nations, large uh, foundations to help them think about not just what could potentially happen tomorrow, but what do they want to see happen tomorrow? And then how do they get there? So it's really kind of a combination of doing kind of consistent scanning of things that are happening out in the world and looking for what we call signals. And sometimes those are very weak signals. But if you see them early enough and you know how to kind of parse the weak signals from the noise, you can kind of connect that with an organization's mission. And then from there, we kind of backcast and say, okay, here's how you get to that future you want. So that's 
that's how we define a kind of working futurist like myself. And to your earlier point around this idea of the future being a verb, not a noun, more often than not, we think of the future as a kind of this noun, this thing kind of out there that we're kind of swimming towards or that's going to kind of wash over us. Whereas really, it's it's very much a verb. It's something that we consistently do in our everyday actions. You don't have to be a, a working uh, you know, professional futurist like me. Uh, I, I often say to people, kind of the number one person who is constantly featuring is a parent, right? I mean, that is like every single moment you are actually creating the future as a verb, as a parent. So anyone who knows parenting as a verb will also know kind of featuring as a verb as well. A lot of times when we think, you and I and everybody, think about the future, we think about our own personal lifespan. It's a very self-centered view from birth to our own death. So how long are we talking when we adopt a futurist mindset? Are we talking 10 years, 50 years, 100 years? How long? So it's interesting, you know, you, you touch on a kind of a, a big part of the long path mindset, which with my book, Long Path Becoming the Great Ancestors, Our Future Needs, is, is really about kind of answering the question that you just asked, and then also putting us in the right kind of headspace or mindset to kind of better future together. So first of all, we have to talk about kind of lifespan bias, which you just brought up. So if you look at kind of all kind of, and this is not a knock on anyone, but kind of everything from the classic kind of Greek stoic literature to the bestsellers of today in the self-help section, more often than not, they're very much kind of focused on you and your individual life, how you can kind of maximize and individuate, which is fine and totally great. But the issues that we face today as a species dictate that we think beyond our own lifespan. So, you know, in answer to your question around how far out, I think hundreds, if not thousands of years out is how we should be thinking about it. Now, if you go into a kind of a corporate setting, more often than not, they're going to say, okay, I'm ready to talk about the future. Let's go five years out, which is understandable. But in terms of what we're talking about, we are really going far out. Uh, And it's important because what it does is it kind of puts us into a, you know, kind of what I call the the kind of the great chain of being. So as opposed to just thinking about the next five, 10 years, again, which is totally fine, being part of the great chain of being recognizes a long time that came before you and a long time that will come after you. Hmm. Well, you've aptly defined futurism for me and my listeners. Thank you so much. But I do want to really drill down short-termism, I guess would be the best way of (laughs) saying what I'm trying to say, short-termism. What are the problems with a short-term frame of thinking and more specifically a short-term way of solving problems. No, look, 100%. Look, the, the the second part of the if you look at the cover of my book it says an antidote for short-termism. So clearly you're hitting on a on a on a big thing here, a big a big feature of long path. Look, if you and I were in the Serengeti 12,000 years ago and an, a large animal with very big teeth came out, you know, from behind a tree, the most important thing for us to do would be to react in a short-term manner. Start running, run up the tree, or fight, right? Fight or flight, limbic system. Now, the fact of the matter is short-termism will always be a part of who and what we are as as homo sapiens. And what short-termism really is, is an over-reliance kind of and amplification of 
really near-term action regardless of its impact on the future. So again, there's always going to be a time for short-term reacting. But the fact of the matter is, is because we're hardwired for this, we sometimes will go into kind of short-term thinking mode because maybe our kid does something wrong or something just happened to us. And we will react in a way that doesn't think about the long-term ramifications of, of that behavior. The reason I wrote this book specifically now is because at this point in time, in kind of the larger arc of human history, we find ourselves in what I call the intertidal. And the intertidal, if, obviously, it's a metaphor, but the intertidal zone, when we're talking about kind of you know marine ecology, is that really interesting place where part of the time it's out of the water and part of the time it's underwater. So it's kind of that in-between. And we are in that in-between right now. We're kind of coming out of really a four to 500-year end cycle uh, that started with the Enlightenment, gave us a lot of great things, but we're now seeing those kind of stories and that mechanistic way of thinking is no longer working for us as a society. Specifically, it's unbelievably detrimental to the environment and, uh, and a cause of a lot of these kind of climate issues. So short-termism is when we find ourselves taking behaviors and actions to the detriment of kind of the long-term future and as opposed to kind of a much more long pathian mindset where we take those things into account. Hmm. Well, I watched your TED Talk, your viral TED Talk, by the way, and I will link to it in this week's show notes. But you gave the example of going out to eat with your kids. And you did touch on the climate crisis there, and we're going to get there. But I really want to set the stage, quick example to make sure all my listeners are on the same page. So I'm hoping you can give me that example of entertaining the kids when you go out to eat to distinguish between short-termism versus long-term thinking. No, 100%. And look, I'm going to tell this story, no judgment, because no one's perfect. And so I'm going to tell this story, but at the same time, recognize that even though I tell it, sometimes we have to default to it ourselves. So uh, but I, the story I give in the TED Talk is, you know, I, I have three younger children and we'll often go out to dinner. And, it, and, if we, and if we go at too late of an hour or people are too hungry, the kids will kind of start to melt down. So the short term kind of reaction is to kind of take out iPhones and iPads and plug the kids into screens, you know, while mom and I can kind of sit there and kind of talk and try to relax and kind of numb the kids down. Now, again, Sometimes in an emergency situation, that's the case. But more often than not, I'm seeing people do this just as a default. So that's a short-term way of dealing with, uh, you know, having not fed your kids, your kids being fussy. The long path way of doing it is actually bringing your kids into conversation, going that kind of extra step and thinking, okay, what is the behavior that I am modeling? Because we can say whatever we want to our kids, but the fact of the matter is, Humans are actually, especially kids, are always learning by what they're seeing, not by what they're being told. So the short term is taking out the screen. The, the long pathway is actually engaging them in conversation or telling stories or whatever it is, not so much just because you're kind of trying to distract them, but you are modeling a way of being and behavior in the world that doesn't, you know, basically have you your kids fall victim and prey to the dopamine-induced screens, that's the kind of the easy short-term way out. So that's short-termism is here, have an iPhone. Long-term, long pathways of being is engaging them, even if it's difficult up front, in conversations, in activities, or something else that shows them that they don't have to just kind of fall into what their immediate needs of their, of their kind of dopamine brain needs are at that moment. Yes, and also modeling for them a parenting strategy that you hope they model for 
their children and their children's children down the road. So it's really transgenerational there. And I will also piggyback off of what you said at the beginning of that story. We've all been there. I have given my kids (laughs) screens in restaurants all the time because there are plenty of times when mom and dad just want to go out to eat and have a quiet meal. But going back to that transgenerational quality of long-term thinking... I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say to me personally, well, you know, well, why should I care about the climate crisis? I'll be long dead by the time things get really bad. And so I'm wondering, how does your concept of transgenerational empathy come into play in this instance? First of all, things are actually already pretty bad in a lot of you know a lot of places in the world. So we have to recognize that we're kind of already in it in some ways. It's just unevenly distributed the kind of the, the climate crisis. That being said, yeah, I get that all the time. People say, "Well, you know, I'm going to do whatever I want. I won't be here. It's not so much an issue." What transgenerational empathy is, which is a kind of the pillar in many ways of the three pillars of Long Path, is probably the, the biggest one. What it's basically saying is that it's incumbent on us. We have a moral obligation and also an obligation uh, to future generations to act on their behalf and in some ways almost act as their proxy so that they do not fall victim to a world that we would ourselves not want to live in. So what's happened, I've noticed over the, I've been in, so I've been involved in working on climate environmental issues for over 20 years. And more often than not, what we'll do is we'll say, okay, here's a scenario of what it looks like in 2050. It's terrible. And we'll show dystopian images and everyone gets kind of freaked out. Understandably, that that's a good way to kind of get people's attention. But what we have seen at Long Path Labs, the organization that I run, working with different professors around the country, is at a kind of neuroscience-based level, folks are only going to take actions around kind of the long term, around generations to come, if there's an emotional connection to them. So we, I don't say in the book transgenerational thinking, right? This is not so much a, a it, it can start off kind of intellectual or cognitive. What's most important is that you actually have a felt attachment. So there are a number of exercises that anyone who practices kind of any sort of mindfulness or contemplative practice, these will feel very familiar to you, but they've been tweaked so that what they do is it's not just about empathy for yourself, or for those around you, which is a component of transgenerational empathy, we've added an element so you can have a kind of empathic and empathetic response to generations to come. What that does is it allows you to take actions in the current moment where you have a felt sense of of moral obligation for future generations in a way that you wouldn't have if it was just kind of an intellectual or kind of cognitive endeavor. And so that that's the tweak of long path. It's not just saying we have to think about the long-term futures. We have to feel about the long-term futures. Well, Ari, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're really going to get down and dirty into how Long path thinking could potentially be one of the many much needed solutions to our climate problems. So we're going to get into that after a quick word from this week's sponsors. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items, and yet somehow 
we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. And we're back with Ari Wallach. He is the author of the new book out last week titled Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors Our Future Needs. Ari, before the break, we started discussing the connection between long path thinking and our climate woes. I want to talk to you about your concept of sandbag strategies, because in my view, at least here in the United States, it really seems like we have mastered using sandbag strategies to solve problems that global warming has created. Can you talk to me more about sandbag strategies? Well, yeah. So it, the sandbag strategy, it, it started off as a metaphor, but when it comes to kind of global warming and climate change, it's, it's, they, they meld almost too perfectly. So I, I use this in the talks that I give. And what I noticed was I once saw this photo, maybe many of you have seen it. It's of these homes that are not that far off from the Mississippi kind of and what you'll see is they'll be surrounded by basically a huge wall of sandbags. And what I found out was many of these homes, what they do is almost two or three times a year, they build up these sandbags to block the floodwaters from coming in. And then, you know, what happens, the water recedes. And they do this over and over again. It's almost like kind of Groundhog Day. So a sandbag strategy is basically... In many ways, it's almost like a it's like a band-aid strategy in a sense where you're kind of consistently doing something to stop the thing from happening, but you're not literally going upstream to figure out what it is in terms of how you will prevent or mitigate the actual thing from happening. Now we see this in business and in politics can kind of consistently. By the way, we also see this in our own lives. And again, much like short-termism, there is a time and a place for sandbags. I actually had some 
flooding at my home last month. We had to put sandbags up. But then what we realized is we had to actually take structural measures and we're in the middle of doing that at my home right now. So I, I looked at the sandbag and said, look, this is a one-off. Yes, you need an emergency sandbag. But to make that your strategy, so over and over again, you just keep putting up sandbags is not going to, not only is it going to not solve the problem, but it's going to make you feel like you're kind of okay in the short term, but in the long term, the water will just get higher. And it's actually not a strategy. If anything, it's a self-defeating cycle. So that's that's a sandbag strategy. Now we see this play out in our in our politics, especially around climate change. We'll kind of consistently do these small things that make us kind of feel good in the moment but they're not tackling the larger systemic issues that we need to kind of wrestle with and and manage if we want to make our way through this, as I said earlier, this intertidal moment. And this intertidal moment is probably for the next 10 to 20 years in terms of its kind of intensity. And if we just apply sandbags in this intertidal, we're not going to navigate it successfully, especially in terms of climate change. Hmm. Well, as you're talking, and I think many listeners would agree with me, our problems that are knocking at our door are so big that we really do need to open ourselves up to long-term solutions, not those short-term sandbag ones. So for listeners who are like me and are saying, yes, yes, as you're talking, what can they do right now to start the adoption towards a long path uh, mindset? So I have to, you know, look, I have to get this question and, uh, and I love answering it because there's, we can kind of go to what's kind of right in front of us to something that requires maybe a little bit more, uh, work on our behalf. And when I mean work, I don't mean heavy work. I mean, kind of thinking through things in a way that's different than the way we've done it before. So first and foremost, uh, because these problems are very large, uh, we have to be engaged citizens. And what that means is obviously be informed of the issues, vote locally, vote at the state level, and vote at the national level for leaders who will carry out policy reforms that you think are going to be in the, the most benefit to future generations. So it's voting. The second one is, look, we know part of the reason we are in this crisis is because of kind of in general overconsumption. That being said, we're not going to all make our own shoes and build our own homes. Some of us might, and that's it's amazing. But for people like me, I still need people who can do that better than I can. So when you do go and kind of consume, look for things that are B Corp, look for things that are sustainable or organic. So that's on the consumption side. Now, the third goes back to something we were talking about earlier, which is kind of the long pathian mindset. So, you know, you got your voting down, you got your consuming down, but now what? And so part of the kind of what what is our legacy, our our heirlooms to future generations will be how we voted, will be what we consumed and as minimal consumption as possible. The third part, which is often undervalued and in many ways often not even discussed, is the emotional heirlooms that we are passing forward. So this goes back to the story about how do we model things for our children or children in our lives, or other humans in our lives, that they will then take on and pass down to future generations. So when I was much younger and I was in high school, I was on the track team. And I one of the one of the kind of races that I did was the four by 100 relay. And so what I loved about that, it was four of us on the track, and we had a baton that we were running with that we had to pass to the next runner. So you, yes, you can think of the baton around kind of consumption, uh, around voting, But what Longpath really pushes us to do is to think of the baton also about our kind of 
mental, emotional, psychological, and spiritual ways of being and asking us and saying, if those are all also within the baton, how are we handing those off to the next generation? And so that's in many ways the kind of the core, the moral, ethical core of Longpath. Now, what that means is when you are faced with a decision, especially one that is one of high emotion, what Longpath will ask you to do is in that second between the action and the reaction is to pause and think to yourself, and I know you often only have a nanosecond here, how is the way I'm about to react going to influence far future generations? That sounds very heavy, and at first it actually feels kind of awkward. That's why Longpath originally was actually developed as, as a mantra, just as a word. So the other day I was in a, in a discussion with my nine-year-old son where I probably wasn't being my best self because I was overly reacting and overly emotional because I, like everybody else, has work they have to do on themselves. And my wife just kind of looked over at me and kind of, and, and worth, you know, like she in, in her mouth without really saying it, she said Longpath. And it clicked. I was like, wait a second. What I'm doing right now is how my son is going to see how he should be with his children, their children, their children. And part of what I want to model is a way of being both high in empathy, but high in respect for what is going around, not only in the in the physical environment, but the mental environment. So the actions you can take are those first two that I listed. And the third is to kind of bring yourself to a level of awareness that your behaviors even if it's only words, have a lasting legacy on future generations. Hmm. I love that. Those are three amazing tips that I and my listeners can start to implement right this second. Before we go, Ari, I do want to bring this conversation back around to the self-centered, self-first human nature <laughs> that so many of us operate under. And you did mention the word legacy in your response to the previous question. I'm wondering how adopting a long path way of thinking, thinking about your own legacy can also interestingly be a self-centered approach because perhaps doing so can help you with the existential crises that so many of us face when we ponder our own mortality. Do you have anything to say on that? Oh my God, I have a whole chapter to say on that, but <laughs> without going, without reading you the entire chapter, look, with the question that we're often asking ourselves when we're lying in there at night, like I was at three in the morning, is like, who am I and why am I here, right? And what Longpath is asking us to do is to kind of reframe the question to who are we and why are we here? And to think less in an individualistic way as we've kind of been prone to do over the past couple of hundred years in the West for, for some good reasons, some bad reasons. And to think actually, okay, if my legacy is going to be both in the physical plane, what I consume and how I vote, but also kind of in the emotional plane, by being a better and best version of yourself and passing that down in terms of legacy to future generations, what you're doing is solving for what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, which is, which is the lifespan bias. Because kind of our, our number one concern as, as humans, obviously, is our own death, right? And it's really avoiding death. But by being a better human and being the best version of yourself and how you interact both with yourself and your own inner dialogue and those around you, you impact the future 
in a way that actually allows you in many ways to live forever. So the biggest issue we have is, oh my God, I'm going to die. My ego is going to die. I'm no longer going to exist. But you will exist because the way you're acting and behaving becomes that baton. And in, and you basically become immortal through your actions, right? If that's, you know, and I'm so, look, some people can put their name on the side of a building, give $100 million to university, and they're immortal as long as that building is standing. For those of us who can't, our behaviors, look, we're tearing all the grass up in our home and creating pollinator pathways, right? That's a small action that we are doing on a kind of a climate-based level in our local community. At the same time, we also have as many family dinners as possible and have long discussions without screens. That's another way we are contributing to the future. So in in the book, it's all there. And what it does is it helps you actually, uh, you know, to your, to your real question, push through that existential angst so that we feel we are doing the best possible thing in the present. And that actually feels allows us to feel more in the present and better on a day-to-day level, which kind of pushes us through. And you're right, it could be kind of seen as selfish, but I don't, if, if being selfish means being empathic to those around you, to yourself and to future generations, so be it. Well, you've given me so much to think about, Ari. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I wish you so much success moving forward. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Listeners, that's a wrap. Show notes are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 299. I have linked to Ari's book. I've linked to his 13-minute TED Talk. It's really darn good. So there was a lot of meat in today's conversation. If you want a 13-minute synopsis, go to his TED Talk in the show notes. Again, at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 299. I want to hear your thoughts on this week's episode. There's a lot there. Reach out to me via email, which is in the show notes, or via voicemail. Leave me a voicemail. That number's also in the show notes. I will see you on Thursday, and take care.